Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds of investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name's Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisich. How you going Mark? Going well, unlike the Warriors' performance on Friday night. How about you? Yeah, Sunday morning, hit the gym. Now we're about to chat stocks. Doesn't get better. June was a quiet month in terms of company updates. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went? June was a relatively quieter month in terms of news flow before we head into July with quarterly updates and August with full year reporting. The Founders Fund finished up 2.9% in June. This was ahead of the benchmark of 0.6% in Kiwi dollar terms. To put things in context, in the nine months since inception, the Founders Fund is up 30.4% versus the benchmark up 4% in Kiwi dollar terms. We've been selective in increasing our weighting towards those companies we feel have the potential to beat earnings expectations, especially where this is unappreciated by the market. We're excited about upcoming company results. Chris, do you want to talk to one of the companies which performed well during the month? Contributing to performance in June was Durotech. We've mentioned Durotech on prior podcasts, so we'll touch on it only briefly here. As a reminder, Durotech's a specialist maintenance and remediation contractor servicing the defence, mining and building industries in Australia. Durotech re-rated during the month after it advised that its mining and industrial segment had continued to strengthen, securing 30 million of work since mid-May. It's important to understand the tailwinds behind Durotech's mining and industrial segment. The Australian mining industry experienced a production capex boom between 2011 and 2015, with spend jumping to around $375 billion in just this four-year period. Compare that to the entire 10 years prior, where capex was only $227 billion. The ageing of facilities built between 2011 and 2015 has seen annual maintenance spend increase from $5.6 billion in FY17 to approximately $7 billion today. These tailwinds saw Durotech's mining and industrial segment grow revenue 29% in the first half of 23 on just the second half of FY22. We expect the strong rates of growth to continue in this segment. Whilst mining and industrial only contributes 25% of Durotech's revenue, it's high margin, contributing 33% of gross profit. Interestingly, Durotech presented at the NWR Vantage Point Conference at the end of May and noted that rates and margin for this segment are increasing. Was there anything you thought was interesting from the update? Yes, at the NWR conference, Durotech expanded on the opportunities being created by its subsidiary MEND Consulting. As a reminder, MEND is a 3D spatial and corrosion consultant, which adds considerable value to Durotech by forging early relationships with clients. Manual inspection is still the industry standard. For asset owners, this requires field engineers to spend significant time, often months, for more complex assets before a complete assessment can be made. MEND short-circuits this process. MEND uses drones to build 3D models of client assets. Anyone can build a 3D model. MEND's crown jewel is AnnoView, which processes the data and annotates the defects. No one else is doing this. Essentially, MEND allows Durotech to understand the assets better than anyone else. A recent example was the 48 million contract win to repair BHP's wharf at Port Hedland. It's estimated that MEND's approach here saved BHP a million dollars. The uptake from other mining clients on the back of BHP is encouraging. Yeah, that's a great point. 
The exciting part of Aturatech is the opportunity to take men's technology global. Existing clients have global operations. Currently, they fly in large teams who do manual surveys. Men can automate this process, opening up the opportunity for Durotech to win work on the back of this. Global expansion can drive a significant multiple re-rating for companies, as we've seen with labour hire service business, Mater. It's early days, but the prospects for Durotech keep getting brighter. Now, we don't get everything right, and that was the case with John's Ling Group this month. Do you want to elaborate on JLG? A detractor for the month was John's Ling. John's Ling provide insurance building and restoration services throughout Australia, NZ and the US. And we were attracted to John's Ling as it met the four P's. Potential, John's Ling can still take market share on insurance panels in the home markets of Australia and New Zealand. And they're also expanding into adjacencies such as strata management, building services and home service work. They're also growing into the US market, which is a very fragmented competitor landscape. Secondly, predictability. Insurance remediation work is different to the business cycle. People, it's a founder-led business. The founder management shareholder group own over 20%. And profitability, well, earnings per share have grown four times since its IPO in FY18. We've had a position since the launch of the Founders Fund. However, we initially reduced its weight last year due to consecutive management sell downs. So what happened? Well, Johnsling held an investor day mid-June. They reported an increased profit guidance later in the month. Unfortunately, this upgraded guidance was expected by the market as the company had presented recently at a number of conferences suggesting strong trading conditions. The incremental news in the update was negative. The upgrade was driven by increased catastrophe work, which is more uncertain as it is dependent on weather events. And there were also increased losses in its commercial construction division, which is being discontinued, and a bad debt associated with the collapse of a customer, Porter Davis. These negatives were unexpected by the market. Johnsling has had a fantastic run with catastrophe events in the last few years under a La Nina weather pattern, which has created more extreme weather events. Catastrophe revenue has increased from just 86.5 million in financial year 21 to over 350 million in this recent financial year. As we move into an El Nino weather pattern, it is likely to be drier and have more settled weather. This means less flooding, which are the large cause of loss events, and potentially more bushfires, which are typically less damaging from a claims perspective. There are two other factors which may have contributed to the recent share price weakness. First, there's been new news articles quoting management suggesting the business is on the hunt for acquisitions. Investors believe this may involve a capital raising if the acquisitions are of a large size. The last sizable acquisition was Restoration Exports in the US, which was funded by a $220 million capital raise at $6.80. Secondly, JLG's US business may be taking long to achieve the same success as their partner model in Australia. As the US is a large growth market for JLG, investors are paying a premium for the earnings generated in this market. There is a successful blueprint of the business model in the US with a company called First Service, which is valued at a $9 billion market cap. However, they have been operating much longer. Overall, Johns Lang has a fantastic owner-operator culture and strong shareholder alignment. They are the largest player in Australia and have a national network that is difficult for the competitors to replicate. Although broker forecasts have largely remained unchanged post the update in June, the premium rating of 30 times PE has taken a step back to the mid-20s for FY24, albeit those expectations look very achievable. However, growth rates are likely to diminish from the high levels of cat work recorded in recent years, and they need to find new adjacencies to expand into to keep growing the core business at 15 plus percent. 
This brings us to the leveling up section of our podcast, Discovery's Bookshelf. I'll kick things off. This week is part tribute, part book review to the legendary investor and businessman William O'Neill, who died in late May at the age of 90. O'Neill's famous for blending fundamental and technical analysis into a single approach called the Canceler Method. Now, if you're tempted to switch off, look, I've heard Canceler before, check yourself. Every sport has the basics, every religion has a prayer component, and at Discovery we constantly review our investment manual. What's the common thread? In the absence of actively practicing the basics, you tend back to fall back into bad habits and patterns. Mastery is built on the basics. Anyway, there's my sermon for today. Back to Bill and Ken Slim. Born in 1933, O'Neill was one of the first quants. After turning 5k into 200k in one year alone in 1962, he founded the Investors Business Daily and at the age of 30 became the youngest person to sit on the New York Stock Exchange. Pedigree established. O'Neill's most famous for his book, How to Make Money in Stocks, first published in 1988. The book set out the Canslim method to show how anyone can pick stocks. Canslim is an acronym, with each letter representing an essential factor in buying a stock. CAN relate to specific stock factors, so let's, let's kick into it. C stands for current quarterly earnings or sales per share growth. Earnings drive stock prices. The higher, the growth, the better but O'Neill suggested looking for at least 25% growth on the PCP. In Australia and New Zealand, this can be easily adapted to half years. A stands for annual earnings increase. This is essentially just a check to make sure that the quarterly number you're looking for isn't a fluke. Again, 25% year-on-year growth is a starting point for O'Neill. Finally, N stands for something new. This means new company, new product, new management, Most winning stocks have benefited from a change in circumstances. This could be the introduction of a new tech or service. EV and AI are recent examples of new technologies propelling stock prices higher. O'Neill advises to buy during times of breakouts to maximise your returns. As we know, the acronym is CAN-SLIM. SLIM is targeted at understanding how the forces of the stock market influence the particular stock you're looking at. S stands for supply and demand. This refers to daily trading volumes. Higher volumes are better. O'Neill focused on small caps with a low number of shares on issue, and this would mean there is limited supply. When limited supply meets increasing demand, particularly from institutions, you get large stock price moves. L stands for leader and laggard. O'Neill suggested buying the top two or three stocks, which are the respective leaders in their field. He also advised to cut the laggards at a maximum of 8% below your buying price. I stands for institutional ownership. O'Neill liked to see increasing institutional ownership, but was wary of crowding by institutions. Clearly, JLG was a case of the latter this month. Other stocks which could fit this category are AUB, DTL, SIQ, PSC, and next year to name a few. Lastly, M stands for market direction. O'Neill was very keen on saying don't fight the market. O'Neill suggests paying attention to the popular market indices to ensure your positioning is aligned with the broader market. Market direction is a critical element in Discovery's risk management process. Overall, O'Neill's remarkable as a self-made man who is generous with what he learned. How to make money in stocks rates a 4.04 on Goodreads, which in my view is an absolute travesty. It's a solid 4.3 plus any day of the week. If you haven't read the book, get stuck in. What do you have for us this month, Mark? My book review this month is Competition Demystified 
this book was first published in 2005 and scores a cool 4.32 on Goodreads. The book was written by Professor Bruce Greenwald at the Columbia Business School. This book is a great way to hack the 200 grand cost on an MBA at Columbia. There is hot competition in this category with three famous books on the competitive advantage subject. The original Porter's Five Forces book called Competitive Strategy that was published in 1985, ranking 4.16 on Goodreads, and then more recently, Hamilton Helmer's Seven Powers, published in 2016, which scores 4.29. Professor Greenwald's thesis here is basically there is one determining factor for competitive advantage, which is barriers to entry. He uses a series of case studies to show how this plays out in real life. He classifies barriers to entry into three components. Firstly, supply advantage. This includes proprietary tech, experience, or exclusive supplier agreements to supply products at a much lower cost than your competitors. For example, BHP with their low cost of production mines. These advantages though tend to erode over time as competition and know-how in the industry increases. The second is demand advantage. And there are three types here. Firstly, habit, that is recurring purchases of the same product, such as Coca-Cola. Secondly, switching costs, both actual and frictional costs of switching from one product to another. This is most apparent today in software businesses. And lastly, search costs. This is where it's expensive or hard to find a replacement product or service. Think here, insurance brokers when you try and ring you your insurance policy. The next competitive advantage is economies of scale, which is the ability to reduce costs per unit as volumes increase, largely due to spreading fixed costs over a greater number of units. Professor Greenwell then talks about how do you identify whether a market actually has barriers to entry. This is easy. There are two factors, persistently high market share and persistently high returns of the companies operating in those markets. The next part of the book deals with how to operate in each market. Firstly, companies that don't have any competitive advantage, which is the majority of businesses, should focus relentlessly on being as efficient and effective as possible. The rewards from superior management that stresses efficiency and productivity can be comparable to those arising from a structural competitive advantage. This is the corporate culture point which many founder-led businesses exhibit. Secondly, in the scenario where you are the dominant player with a strong competitive advantage, basically don't stuff it up. Do what you can to sustain that position. And if you're not the dominant player, get out of that market as soon as possible. Examples here would be realestate.com.au or Google. And lastly, where there are multiple market players that enjoy competitive advantages, this is a fixed sum game and cooperation is often the best strategy. However, this is difficult to do in practice given competition authorities. We often see this in the fuel retailing industry where retailing prices are matched, but there is no race to the bottom. This requires competitors to be rational, which unfortunately is not often the case. There's also a bonus comment here on M&A. Acquisitions are generally value destructive. They provide no synergies and are often eventually divested. From an acquisition to really produce value, it must produce cost synergies that outweigh both the cost of distraction of getting those synergies and secondly, the premium paid to control the company. Overall, the book is valuable in assessing a company's competitive position and querying management's strategic decisions, especially around capital allocation. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX. What do you have for us this month, Mike? A leader for the month was Navigator, NGI.ASX. NGI increased 34% in June as they announced a capital restructure. So what is NGI? NGI is an alternative asset manager on the ASX. 
The business is US based and they have a hedge fund of fund business called Lighthouse and then minority stakes in a selection of boutique asset managers, which they label the strategic portfolio. In the US, this industry is called the GP stakes business. And one of the leading players is the $5 billion listed Blue Owl Group, which owns Dial. And Dial is also the largest shareholder in NGI. NGI benefits from this relationship with Dial by seeing their deal flow, which may be too small for them to execute on themselves. There's a couple of listed competitors on the ASX, which is similar, which is Pinnacle and Pacific Current. As part of an acquisition of an interest in boutiques uh, three years ago from Dial, NGI had an earnout liability of up to $200 million due in 2026. Chris, what was the market perception on this earnout? The market didn't believe that NGI could make the future payment without raising capital. NGI had already reduced their dividend payout and taken on a debt facility to help the cause. Last step was calling in the investment bankers. To solve the overhanging issue, NGI now proposes to issue shares to Dial at $1.40, which was a 40% premium to where the shares were trading prior to announcing the deal. What this means is that NGI will now be entitled to all of the earnings that Dial was receiving from these managers, rather than just a preferred minimum distribution amount. What does the deal look like? What does NGI look like post-deal? Well, firstly, the business was super complicated with various earnout structures and profit share mechanisms, and now this has been resolved. With the business US domiciled, the strategies were also not well known to Australian investors. Secondly, Dial will have a 51% interest in the business and the issue will now be whether they decide to sell down potentially over time creating more overhang thirdly portfolio has improved from when it was concentrated on the hedge fund of fund strategies which were in structural decline and at risk of fee pressure now the portfolio has exposure to strategies with higher performance fee potential and some of the new private equity real estate strategies will earn a substantial portion of their earnings as carry which are basically performance fees that are accrued when assets are sold there should be good upside in the next few years as assets are realised from prior funds. Chris, what's the view on the industry outlook here for alternatives? The outlook for alternatives is bullish. A recent study by Bain highlighted that alternative assets represent 21% of global AUM, however 50% of global revenue. The strong momentum is expected to prevail with a 7% KGAR in alternative assets over the next five years. A substantial amount of the growth in the alternative asset space will be driven by investments in private debt and private equity, which are both expected to grow around about 10% per annum. Furthermore, retail investors have been under-allocated to alternatives. With new product offerings, retail allocations are expected to grow more than 15% annually in the next 3-5 to five years. Alternatives are seen as a panacea for traditional fund managers struggling with competition from passive. With inflow tailwinds, high demand from retail investors, and high fees, it's no wonder that this is what is top of the agenda for M&A among many asset managers. What does it look like from a valuation perspective? Well, NGI spits cash. The earnings from the core lighthouse business have been tax sheltered as they work their way through over $100 million of deferred tax assets. Therefore, EBITDA has historically been a good proxy for free cash flow. And a high portion of these earnings have been paid back to shareholders with a dividend payout of 70 to 80% of EBITDA. The business has had a predictable cash flow profile as the majority of its earnings were derived from management fees. But to be honest, those management fees weren't growing that fast either. Post-transaction, there is more exposure to alternatives with three quarters of the earnings coming from the strategic portfolio and just a quarter from the hedge fund business. 
On a pro forma basis, post-transaction, this business is earning 82.4 million US dollars in EBITDA. It's trading at six times EBITDA or around seven times free cash flow. Overall, the business is cheap, has high cash generation, capital structure has been cleaned up, and there are tailwinds for alternatives. The transaction still needs to seek shareholder approval here, and the key question is going to be what are Dahl's plans with their stake? Has this just moved the overhang from debt to equity? Dial don't need to sell, it's held in a permanent equity structure, but the improved free flow could mean the business is potentially eligible for ASX 300 inclusion over time. Chris, what do you have for us this month? I have a laggard this month. And as far as laggards go, this one's difficult to beat. My laggard is AMA Group. AMA is a leading vehicle repair company with 132 repair sites across Australia and New Zealand. The share price has been smashed. Pre-COVID, AMA traded $1.40. Today, it's $0.10. AMA is a fascinating story of what happens when two insurers control 85% of insurance repair volumes. Let's start with the origin story. It's 2010. Better in-company car safety systems were meaning less crashes. Several individuals, namely Jim Vass and Ray Malone, saw the opportunity to follow the well-trodden path of overseas markets by rolling up the industry to drive economies of scale. These factors set the scene for a consolidation of the repair industry in Australia and New Zealand. On one side, we had Jim Vass. Vass left school at 14 and entered the industry, starting his own shop at the tender age of 21 in 1991. Fast forward to 2010, Vass has seen an opportunity to fix minor repairs in a factory-style fashion, but he needed volume to make it work. He approached both Suncorp and IAG. Vass offered the insurers cheaper repairs and faster vehicle turnaround times. Suncorp liked Vass's offer. Now pay attention because this part's important. At the time, Suncorp was backing Wood's accident repair chain. Backed by Suncorp, Woods was the original Australian panel repair consolidator. However, Suncorp cut ties with Woods and brought into what became known as Capital Smart. Vass got the volume and scale he needed and Capital Smart started to expand at a rapid rate. Without Suncorp's volumes, Woods had to scramble for business with a 15% of the industry not controlled by Suncorp and IAG. Years later, its 14 struggling shops would be brought out by Ray Malone and AMA for just $2 million. There's potentially a warning from history there for current AMA shareholders. Mark, do you want to tell us about Ray? At the same time Capital Smart was being formed, Ray Malone, a talented entrepreneur, had become the CEO of failing repair business AMA, or Alamac as it was called then. Ray turned AMA around from a near-death experience, forcing banks to take a large haircut on their loans, and by 2015 had raised $45 million of private money to consolidate the industry. Backed by volume from IAG, Ray successfully executed the roll-up, eventually merging with Gemini in 2015 to create a national footprint of 70 shops. At the beginning of 2016, AMA's share price was 80 cents. Fast forward to 2019. Suncorp wanted to sell Capital Smart, citing the increased complexity of repairs, driving significant change in the smash repair industry. At this point, AMA has over 100 sites and its share price was trading $1.40 plus. All looked rosy with AMA, but interesting things were happening behind the scenes. IAG, which accounted for most of AMA's volume, was making moves, buying 23 panel sites to do its own panel work. Just as Suncorp was exiting the industry, IAG was entering it. AMA could see the writing on the wall. And he had to diversify away from IAG. In 2019, Suncorp sold 90% of its capital smart to AMA. 
Along with tw- a 25 year service agreement to continue repair work for Suncorp, the price was a staggering 420 million or 20 times earnings. AMA typically paid only two and a half to five times for acquisitions. Even post acquisition, IAG still represented 40% of the business. Just prior to Christmas in 2019, AMA downgraded earnings. Many reasons were cited in retrospect. Perhaps the key issue was fixed pricing with Suncorp and their service agreement against rising repair costs of new technology-laden cars. The imminent onset of COVID only further exacerbated the inflationary headwinds for the business. Let's try and bring this to the present. Cal Bizen was appointed CEO of AMA in 2021 and led a significant restructure of the business. Unfortunately, the fixed price deal with Suncorp remains a key impediment to profitability. AMA is currently in negotiations with Suncorp to recut the fixed price deal. What could this look like? We believe Suncorp is around 50% of AMA's repair volumes. In the last quarter, AMA's cash burn was circa $10 million and it's carrying $233 million in debt which needs to be refinanced. If this was Texas Hold'em, AMA would be holding a 2 and a 7. AMA is gunning for its fixed pricing to be reset. Claims inflation for motor suggests pricing could be, should be reset 25% higher. Industry feedback suggests AMA needs at least 20% just to be profitable. However, Suncorp is probably aiming for low double digits. What does this mean? In the short term, they both need each other. AMA needs a deal so it can either raise equity, refinance or a combination of both. Suncorp needs AMA to handle its volume, as is an industry backlog. The most likely outcome is probably a short-term deal. The question for AMA shareholders is whether history could repeat itself, with Suncorp eventually moving volume away from AMA, just as it did with Woods a decade ago. The irony is that post-COVID, there are a shortage of panel beaters and a backlog of supply. This means that AMA shops are in a difficult position. Labour is super scarce. Their beaters are being poached with offers of higher wages, all while not being able to pass this cost inflation on to their two insurer customers, which control 85% of the insurer repair volumes. As we're fond of saying, you need a beat, cash flow, and outlook. You'd need the jaws of life to pry any one of those three out of the current situation. Right, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.